We're in the next section, the Kingdom Economics, chapter 16, verse 1 through 17, verse 10. In this section, Jesus warns of the dangers of wealth as a distraction to entering into the kingdom of Yahweh. The problem is not wealth itself, but the temptation to put it ahead of Yahweh and serving him. Remember, this is, I'm going to make this point over and over again. God and Jesus are never, ever forbidding wealth. They're never trying to make you feel guilty for being wealthy. This is a very common thing in the church. To either We either, one, most likely as Americans, rationalize our wealth and justify our absorbent spending and materialism on ourselves, and then we don't like the way that that looks or feels, so we have this, like, revelation kind of a moment and then we want to like condemn all wealth altogether. I'm not saying that everybody does that but that tends to be a very common thing. Somebody has this like Jesus moment or revelation and this aha moment about themselves but then they they just go to the extreme and they they want to condemn it constantly. Um, It's like when new Christians first become Christians they get obsessed with creationism and revelation. And they think that all of Christianity is wrapped up in those two things. And then they kind of, a few years go by, and hopefully they realize, oh, there's all these other books of the Bible. And that's what we need to understand. As we come to wealth, we need to see all this in the context of all Scripture and the, the Gospel of Luke. And so we should neither justify our materialism nor condemn having things altogether. The point is, what priority have we made it in our life, and what are we doing with it? And that's the, that's the questions that we should be asking with everything. Everything. Period. So chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who was informed of accusations that his manager was wasting his assets. So he called the manager in and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your administration, because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to him, What should I do, since my master is taking my possessions away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what to do so that when I'm put out of management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he contacted his master's debtors one by one, and he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? And the man replied, A hundred measures of olive oil. And the manager said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And the second man replied, A hundred measures of wheat. The manager said to him, Take your bill, and write eighty. And the master commended the dishonest manager, because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their contemporaries than the people of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by how you use worldly worldly wealth, so that when it runs out, you will be welcome into the eternal homes. So this man is squandering the money of his master. This word squandering is the exact same word that was just used in the, the compassionate father of the son who squandered the wealth as inheritance. And so he's basically misusing it in a very worldly, selfish kind of a way. All he can think about is himself and what he wants to do with it. The master is not pleased with his conduct in any kind of way and decides he's going to fire him. 
At this moment, this guy goes in panic and realizes there's a lot of things in the world that I'm not capable of doing. But what I do need is I need friends. If I can't do this and this and this and this, I need people who will care about me and look out for me. And so what he decides to do is he decides to show compassion to people. Now, granted, his motives are selfish, and that's not the point of the parables. Be selfish for your own gain. But the point is that he's trying to win friends and gain connections. Now, you might think, wow, but this is really dishonest. He's taking the debt that is owed to his master. And he's like, you don't have to pay the whole debt to your master, my master. I'll just cancel it. We would expect any boss to say, what the heck? They owe me all that. You can't just like go into Walmart and decide as an employee to start marking down prices on everything just because you feel like you want to get friends to like you. This is our company. Most likely that's not what he's doing. What he's doing is reducing his commission. It's not that he's reducing the debt of the master or what they owe the master. He's reducing the commission that he has added to it for collecting the debt that is going to the master. So he is getting rid of his paycheck in order to gain connections with other people. And this is what the master commends him for, is that he's not abusing people financially, but being gracious to them and showing them um, compassion or better words, mercy. And this is what he's pleased with. And then Christ basically says this, two things. First, the people of the world are more shrewd with their money than the church is. We all know that there's always exceptions to everything, but I have seen this too in my own life. Um, the, the longer I'm in around in the church, there's something about Christians who just, we hold on to everything. And we're, I think we were just so used to being rejected by the world. This is my total guess, okay? I'm not saying this is from God, okay? But in my limited experience, which is gaining more and more every year as I get older, but still limited to many people that I know. Um, I feel like we've been rejected by so many people in the world. Um, we have felt outcasted. And um, there's so many things that we haven't been able to have because of ministry or because we've had to make sacrifices. And we've, we've made sacrifices to live the right way. Um, and I feel like when we do get what we want, we just hold on to it. And by we, I mean just the American church as a whole. Power and money seems to be a very struggle. We're afraid that if we lose these things, then we won't be able to take care of ourselves in the world, or the world will clobber us all the more, or take even more away from us, or we'll lose even more respect. And there's just something about our culture that we don't want to be seen as poor, and especially as Christians. And Jesus is like, look, this is not what it's about. Okay, this is not what it's about. And so he says this, Use your money to win and influence friends. Sounds like a sequel. But this is what he's saying. Money shouldn't be about your gain. Listen, he's not saying you should sell, give away all your money because it's hard to use your money to win and influence friends if you have no money. What he's saying is being shrewd and thoughtful and use your money to influence friends. Use it to gain friendships and connections. You're like, yeah, but... I wouldn't want friends that are just there for my money. And that's not the point either. Like, I'll just give you $100 all the time, and then all of a sudden they end up liking you for the wrong reasons, because that's legitimate. But it's like, just don't hoard it for the fear of how people will view you if you don't have it, or hoard it for the fear of what will happen one day if you don't have this nest egg. But give it to people. Invest in people. 
and, and, and trust that God will take care of you. When I was growing up, I remember hearing a lot of people say like, I just got this swimming pool in my backyard. And now all of a sudden, all these neighbors are like my best friends and want to come over and swim all the time. Or, or my kids just got this battery-powered like car that they're able to like sit in those little miniature cars and they're like going around the sidewalk and stuff. And now like all the people in the neighborhood want to be their friends. Or I just got a trampoline. Or I just got like I've heard this so many times. Like, and I I just resent it and hate it because they didn't care about coming over before until I had this. And it's like, yeah, so what? And I get that it's frustrating. I'm an introvert, okay? I get that it's frustrating. But at the same time, it's like, now you have a captive audience. You don't have to go to door to door trying to share the gospel with them and awkwardly trying to figure out how to talk about Jesus or go to their barbecue and awkwardly try to throw Jesus into it. Now they're coming to your house all the time. And, and now you can open your house and now you can serve them. And you can, you can give them free hot dogs now and have free barbecues in addition to that. And, and you can open it up. And believe me, this is challenging to me too. Like, I don't mind sharing all this stuff with you as long as it's in your backyard. Okay, I'll bring all my stuff <laughs> and bring it over and give it to you. But my backyard is like, this is my safe space. But at the same time, I know this is what Christ is saying to open your house and open up your wealth and open your belongings so that they can see you live the Christian life. And then now you have an audience. And it's a lot easier to talk to them about things when they've seen your generosity, they've seen your servanthood, you've opened things up to them, and they're a captive audience. And this is what Christ is talking about. And my wife and I have often talked about this, and this is really challenging my home is my castle and my private safe place. But I realize that I want to be the kind of home that the, all my daughter's friends come to our house. And, and we know we aren't going to, we're not going to out-wealth the vast majority of the people go to my school. But my hope is that we can be a place of comfort. And I, I read the journals of many of my students, and home life is not always good. And even though I may not be able to outwealth their parents, um, I might be able to be a place where they feel welcome and safe. And I'm not going to say I'm going to outlove their parents because I don't want that. I want their parents to be loving. But that I can be a place where they feel welcome, they feel safe, they feel comfortable. That, that they can, they, that hopefully my daughters won't be like, well, I don't want to be home. This is a miserable place. And that they'll hear that and that they'll want to come over. And that we can be that place of refuge. I think that's the idea that Christ is talking about here is just open your lives. And it's not necessarily just write a thousand dollars to some kind of charity, although that's part of it too, um, but really just investing in people. And I think the better way to view these passages is not just use your wealth to get friends and they're all shallow or to just write lots of checks to charity and that kind of stuff, though that's totally valid and necessary. But I think the point is people should be your investment. And, and, find, and, and, and that takes money. That takes money. And the question is, do we really believe that this God will take care of us financially, emotionally, and time-wise if we sacrifice those things and invest them in everybody else? Because I know my, I don't really have a lot of money to invest in people, period, but um, that's not really my weakness. My weakness is time, okay? Like my weakness is like, oh, but... 
I got this thing to do and I got this thing to do or I need my alone time after an all day spending it with 120 people. Okay, I'm all extroverted out. And they have so many of them have come to me with their problems and talk to me about their home lives and all that kind of stuff. And I want that and I want to be there for them, but I can't handle another one. I just like to go home and crawl into my little private place. And that's what I like, feel more challenged of is like really, truly investing my time. And this is what God is talking about. It's not just money, it's resources. And in our day and age, resources is not just money, it's time. It's mental energy. It's emotional energy. Okay, it's all that kind of stuff. And it's so easy to just either one, invest it in ourselves, not one, just all of us. We invest it in our comfort. That's what the modern-day American dream has become. And we can talk about all the day, all the time what the forefathers intended. But today, the American dream is our comfort. And it's either my safe, quiet place, or it's my entertainment, or it's my luxury vacations. But thinking about how can I use that to invest in other people. And not that you I mean, remember, Jesus got away. He had his quiet times. There's nothing wrong with going on vacation with your family and not having to invite other people all the time. But the question is, how often? How are we doing it? And most importantly, are we asking Christ, what should I do with this moment? And that's what Jesus is saying. Use this to win friends because those are the people that we have come to invest in. The one who is faithful and very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest and a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you haven't been trustworthy and handling worthy wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you haven't been trustworthy with someone else properly, property, who will give you your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money simultaneously, is the implication. We've all been around long enough to see this. Like, if you can't handle the little things, there's no way you're going to handle the big things. And we've seen it financially. We've seen it with leadership. Like, you just don't hand somebody total leadership. You give them small responsibilities and that kind of stuff, and you see how they handle it and how they interact with people. How do they handle problems when those things are coming? And then you determine whether you give them more. And you, you, you give your children certain extension on the leash to see how they'll handle it before you give them more. And this is a gradual process. And what Christ is saying, this is true of everybody. And so if you're not really investing the little that you have in other people in the kingdom of God, then God is not going to give you more to invest. He's not going to bless you. And, and this is the thing that I often think about is oftentimes when you ask, why don't I have more? It might be because you haven't handled what he's giving you wisely. And I'm not saying that's always true. Just like if you're suffering, it's not always true that you're suffering because you sin. But it should be the first question you ask. Is there sin in my life that has caused suffering? And then you allow God to search your heart and you surrender to him. And if the answer is no, then you begin to go and ask other things. But if you don't have a lot, if, if people aren't coming to you, if you don't have a lot of friends, if you don't have um, this investment, if, if people are not trusting you, if you don't have the resources for this, then the first question you should be asking is, have I been mishandling what has been given to me? I'm not saying that's always the answer, but I'm saying it's a good starting place. 
It's a good starting place. There's this passage in first or in John where Jesus is in the upper room and he says, Those who obey my commands, okay, the, the Father is giving you commands, and those who obey the commands prove that they love me. And if you love me and obey me, then I'll go to the Father and ask him to reveal more to you. And then if you obey and love me in that, then I'll go to the Father and ask you to reveal. And this is the cyclical pattern. You, you love him, so then you obey him. And then when you obey him, he gives you more from the word of God. And then you love him by obeying that. And then that's the same thing that I tell my students. If you've wondered why God hasn't been speaking to you lately or revealing more truths to you from the scriptures, it could be either you're not listening to him or you're not being obedient. And he's not going to entrust you with more. And this principle applies to every part of our life. And once again, I would not make a sweeping absolute statement that that's always the reason you have not. But I would say that's a very good starting point to ask God why I have not. As what have I done with what I have? And Jesus is saying, I will give you more when you're responsible for it. And it's too easy in this culture, way too easy in America, to try to love two masters at once. We have been blessed with so much. But with that, it is so easy to love two masters, to love our house and God, or to love our job promotions and God, to love our entertainment system and God, to love our vacations and God. And God says you'll end up resenting one. Now, maybe you're like, well, I don't hate God, but have we become apathetic towards God? Okay? Have we, have, have we become distant to him? Have we stopped seeking him out? Has it become a duty to pray and read our Bible rather than a joy and a desire? And that's the question we need to ask ourselves. And once again, none of this is meant to be condemning or judgmental because that's not why Christ came. He did not come to condemn the world. He came to give the world life. What this is meant to be is introspective. Christ is never coming and saying, don't, don't, beating you over the head like some legalistic person. The point is, search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there's any, see, test my anxious thoughts, and see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the everlasting life. The point is to give us time to actually open ourselves to God and say, is there something here that needs to be revealed? And this is the point of Christ. And remember, all these statements need to be put in the context of who he is. Verse 14. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and ridiculed him. But Jesus said to them, you are, this, you are the ones who justify yourselves in men's eyes. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly prized among men is utterly detestable in God's sight. God is not saying, oh, you love your house. Or you love this or that, that, that. God just despises that. And you're like, you created it all, God. He says, what you love, what you've become obsessed with, God hates that obsession. God hates the fact that you have made that number one. The law and the prophets were enforced until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed. And everyone is urged to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for any tiny stroke or a letter in the law to become void. Jesus basically says, 
the law and the prophets were in force. Basically, the law has been ruling your nation. God gave you the law to govern these people and to govern you. And that's a good thing. But as Paul will come along and say later, the law was only temporary to point to the thing that is greater. And once that thing is greater, then the law is no longer the dominant primary magistrate in your life. And so what Jesus is saying is that thing that is greater is here. The kingdom of God is here. And now the law is not a means of helping you understand the kingdom of God and what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God that will one day come. Now the kingdom of God is actually here for you to enter into it. And when you enter into this new kingdom, you will get a new law, that is Christ. And so now he says, everyone is urged to enter into it. I'm asking you to leave these old kingdoms, this old kingdom where law is everything, where money is everything, where prestige is everything, where, where knowledge is everything, and enter this new kingdom. And yes, Christ initially and specifically meant for the You cannot serve God and money at the same time to be about money. But I also believe that you can easily apply this to all forms of currency. And like I said, resources, time, fame, emotional health, all these kinds of things. You're now urged the kingdom of God. Now, some of your translations might say that everyone is forcing themselves into the kingdom of God. This is a very difficult Greek phrase here. And so some translations have translated that everyone is forcing themselves into the kingdom of God. And some might say everyone is urged. Most likely, everyone is urged to enter the kingdom of God is the more accurate phrase. You could either say, see it as they are urging or forcing their way in, or God is urging you to come in. And that's basically the struggle here, is what is the one causing the urging or the forcing? Is God calling you to the urge, or are you urging yourself? And the reason the latter is more preferable is because it's very unlikely that we as humans are forcing ourselves into the kingdom of God. The Bible has over and over and over again made the point that we don't really truly want the things of God. We're enslaved to sin and death. And that only by the grace of God do we have this desire to pursue him. And that most of the time we want our own kingdom. We want our own way. This is why praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, is a very difficult prayer for us to pray. Maybe not in words, but in actual sacrifice and surrender. And the context doesn't point to the seat. He's talking to the Pharisees. They're not trying to force themselves in the kingdom of God. They're very happy with the kingdom that they've built. In fact, they're trying to kill the person who's introducing this new kingdom. And so the context, everything about this in the Bible and through the context makes it very clear that God is basically saying, please forsake your kingdom, your money, your currencies, and come into this new kingdom. That is the context. I am urging you to enter the kingdom of God. But this also makes it very clear that God will not force them. God is not a God that forces people into these situations. And the reason he's saying this is the Pharisees revealed themselves to what kingdom they really belonged to because they sneered at Christ. 
Now, I don't have to, like, communicate what that word means. We all, like, live in a culture where that word sneered is a very powerfully visual kind of a word that we see in people. They sneered at him because they did love money. They did love the currency of this kingdom. And he tells them that all these things, your kingdom will pass away, but not one stroke or iota of the law will pass away. What are the strokes in iota? In the Hebrew letters, the Hebrew letters are just basically straight lines, okay? And they're very blocky. But there's these little strokes that distinguish the minuteness of one letter to the other. So there's certain letters that look very similar to each other. And the only thing that kind of helps you tell the difference is these minor little strokes. And so what he's saying is even the tiniest parts of the law are totally valid and necessary because they're going to point to who Christ is, and Christ must fulfill the entirety of the law. And what God is saying is that everything that God has created, heaven and earth, is far more temporal than the word and the promises and the kingdom of God. And in this sense, you might me better understand heaven as sky. So creation itself is far more likely to pass away than the promises in the kingdom of God. Which kingdom do you really want to be a part of? Pharisees. That's the implication. Then he goes on and says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery, and the one who marries a woman, divorces her from her husband, commits adultery as well. Now this sounds very weird. Like, wow, you just transitioned from money to that. Um, what is going on here? And, but what God is talking about is covenant promises. The context is covenant promises. And he's making it very clear that there's only two covenants that you'll ever really truly make in your life. Your covenant with God and your covenant with your spouse. And so what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying here, is that divorce is not a part of God's kingdom plan. We can get into all the exceptions of divorce. And, and I'm not going to... I really, truly do not believe in divorce. I do not. God makes it very clear that... I mean, I think everyone agrees that divorce is not God's ideal. But this is not what God designed as a part of creation. This is not his intent when he was creating Adam and Eve in the garden. And I think we can all agree that divorce is destructive, that divorce is harmful, especially if you have kids. You've seen what that does. So I don't think I need to convince anybody that divorce is not good. The problem is how much of a sin do we see it as? How willing are we to justify it? And yes, we can go to examples where Christ is not talking about the divorce where you've done everything you can do to keep it together and your spouse is the one who's walked away. You can't do anything about that. If you condemn the people who their spouses walked out on them, then you have to condemn God for his creation, abandoning him and walking out on him. We can talk about abuse and drug alcohol and sexual addictions and affairs and that kind of stuff. But then we also have to ask the fact, did you really have to divorce them? Could you just get out of the house and get away from them? Is there still a way that you can be involved in their life and honor your commitments, but still be not with them and be safe? And we can talk about all those things. And yes, it is a very case-by-case -case scenario. Everything in the kingdom of God is case-by-case. -case. God does not equally deal with everybody the same way. I mean, my daughter's like, this is not fair. It's like, you don't want to live in a fair world. 
You want to live in a just world. Okay, if I accidentally trip and kill somebody and somebody else premeditates it and kills somebody, I don't want to be treated the same as them. And that's not just, and nor does God do that, because the law makes it very clear that motive and intention is a factor in sin and that kind of stuff. So yes, I agree with all that. There's a case-by-case scenario with every single situation. Yes, sometimes things are out of your control, and you cannot control the other person. Yes, sometimes things are very violent and very unsafe for you and the children. Yes, 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 yes. However, Jesus makes it very clear that you still swore a covenant promise for better and for worse. Sickness and health, all kinds of sicknesses, spiritual sickness, emotional sickness, mental sicknesses, till death do us part. And divorces now just become something casual to them at this time. The Pharisees believe that they could just divorce their wife for burning their bread. And we can relate to that now. Because some people divorce on very legitimate reasons, like affairs or spousal abuse or mental illnesses and that kind of stuff. But other, a lot of divorces are just, eh, it just got too hard. It wasn't, she or he wasn't meeting my needs anymore. It did, I'm not happy. I married the wrong person. We're just not compatible. And we can relate to that. Okay, we live in a world where it's just come casual to us. And what Jesus is saying is he hates divorce. We made this very he made this very clear in Ezra and Micah, um, where divorce was not God's intention. And you're like, oh wait, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say that like, oh, if someone commits adultery, then you can get a divorce? And and didn't Moses, and those are the Pharisees are gonna bring up is Moses in the Matthew's gospel, I think it is. Moses, they bring up, but Moses wrote a certificate of divorce. He allowed it. Moses is the greatest prophet who stood face to face with God. Who are you to question him? And Jesus basically responds later in the other gospels, yes, God allowed divorce through Moses because of the hardness of your hearts. I'm allowing for adultery, not for the sin of adultery, but divorce because of adultery, because of the hardness of your hearts. God knew that some things we just cannot handle. Did God want the temple? No. But did he allow it? Yes. Because sometimes God allows what he expressly forbids because of the stubborn persistence of his people. Did God want a king like Saul? No. But did he allow it? Yes. Because sometimes God allows what he expressly forbids because of the stubbornness of his people. Did God want us to sin and ruin the whole Garden of Eden? No. But because sometimes God allows what he expressly forbids because of the stubbornness of his people. Do you think God is really pleased with the Holy Spirit living in our corrupt, sinful bodies? No, but sometimes God allows. And we can go on and on with so many things that God has allowed but was not okay with. Is God okay with the materialism of the church? No, but God sometimes allows what he expressly forbids because of the stubbornness of his people. And that's what Jesus is saying. I allow divorce because of your hard-heartedness because of your stubborn persistence. Why would God do that and not just put his foot down? I don't know. Because maybe compromise is better than losing everybody. And once he gains your heart, then maybe he can change you. I know some marriages are incredibly difficult. But what Christ is saying is, this is what it means to be the image of God. And the character of Christ is that we have wronged him far more than any spouse could ever wrong you. 
And yet he has continued to be in your life. And he's continuing to pursue you. And he's continuing to draw you. And we know the sins of the world. We know the nastiness of men and women's hearts. And what they have done burning down the world around us. Some of us have been horribly wrong. And yet that's nothing compared to how we have wronged him. And what Christ is saying is this is what the kingdom of God is about. This is the kingdom of God. It is pursuing you in a covenant relationship that I made regardless of what you have done. The willingness to forgive you and redeem you regardless of what you have done. And you have then turned that law that's pointing you towards the kingdom of God and you've turned it into how it will gain you power. And the most ultimate example of how you've used the law of God to gain you power is that you've made money more powerful and more of a God than God himself. And the other one is that you've treated covenant relationships like this. And yet the covenant of Moses is all about covenant relationships and a God that pursues you no matter what. I know that there are people out there who will disagree with me on my interpretation of divorce. And I get that this is a very difficult passage. In my opinion, I don't think it's too difficult, but, but I know people who do argue with that. But I also say this. I'm not judging or condemning you in any kind of a way if you've gotten divorced. And I'm not standing up here trying to make you feel guilty or condemn you or any of your children or any of your sisters or brothers or whatever, your parents. Because in the end, divorce is no different than a lot of the things that I've done. In the end, this is the whole point. Even for divorce, God is a God who redeems and forgives no matter what you have done. And the people of divorce should receive the same compassion, the same love from us as the image, as what God is calling us to show our spouse when we're having difficulty staying with them. Does that kind of make sense? And the same love we're called to show anybody who has done anything to us. That we're not marked by how we judge people, we're marked by how we love them. This is not meant to be condemning in any kind of way. It's meant to reveal the point that Christ is trying to make here. This is the point. This kingdom is different. This kingdom is not about power. It's not about what you want. It's about serving people. It's about investing in people. It's about life. Ephesians 5.25 makes it very clear that the total and most ultimate character of God is that the image is that the believers is to love their spouses like Jesus loved the world. And for me, Ephesians 5.25 is probably the most essential commenters on divorce. If we are to love our spouses like Jesus loved the world, well then that is all you really need on the theology of how one handles divorce. 